Our second scripture passage is from the book of Job. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest, with kings and counselors of the earth, who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, who dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and that I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to be with you. It's lovely to be introduced as a friend of Christ Church Vienna. That's a great compliment. Thank you. And I've so enjoyed um, being coming a very, very small part of your story here at Christ Church Vienna, watching your story unfold and being laying a tiny, tiny little part in it. And it's one of the ways, isn't it, that we get to know each other as human beings, is that we share stories. You share stories of who we are and what's happened to us, but also we kind of hold on to various stories that have particular meaning for us. 
So if I was to have a coffee with you, after a while, after we'd introduced ourselves to each other and we'd had a chat about life, you might ask me, well, Matt, what kind of films do you like? What kind of books do you read? What kind of stories make up the framework of your universe? And so we would chat a little bit, and maybe you would say, well, I, I like kind of rom-coms, romantic comedies, and I'd be starting to say, okay, this is a person who likes a lot of emotion in their lives. They like to figure that out. And then I'd say, well, I like Star Wars. And you'd be thinking, okay, bit of a nerd. Like stories that are endlessly the same and repeat and repeat and repeat themselves and never change. So you'd start to frame your life a little bit or our lives a little bit like that. But I want to make a little confession. I've got to the point in my life where my favorite kind of film is actually a children's animation. Now, I don't know what that says about me. It might be that I have three small, uh, three small girls, or it might be that I'm getting old. And a recent film that I saw, um, which I actually found profoundly moving, and I think there's something about children's animations that sometimes allow the authors and the filmmakers to explore ideas and things about humanity that might seem pompous or a little bit overblown in adult films. But in children's animations, somehow you get to explore these. And a particular film that I enjoyed enormously was a film called Inside Out. Have you seen Inside Out? Lots of nodding heads. And have we got a little picture of Riley? There she is. There's Riley. And it tells the story, if you've not seen this film, or just to remind you if you have, it tells the story of Riley. Riley is a happy little Midwestern girl. And the filmmakers have made it very clear where she lives, the sun always shines. Riley loves to play hockey. She's a happy girl, it's a happy family. Until one day, disaster strikes. Disaster strikes because her father gets a job in San Francisco. And now the family have to move from happy, sunny Midwest to gray and gloomy San Francisco. Apologies to anybody who lives in San Francisco. And Riley's carefully constructed world, her emotional world, starts to fall apart. It's beautifully set out in the film that in the film that she has these kind of emotional islands that are part of her psyche, the way that she holds her world together. There's a family uh, island, there's a hockey island, and she piles memories into this and builds these islands, this security up. And as she moves to San Francisco, it all starts to fall apart. And we watch this crisis unfold, can I just see the next slide, through these little characters who live inside her head. Five emotions. And I think psychologists would say these are the five primary emotions. There's anger, fear, joy, disgust. It's an interesting one, isn't it? And sadness. Anger, fear, disgust, joy, and sadness. And we watch as this crisis unfolds, these characters interact with each other. And the main thing is, and you can see because she's in a kind of glow, is that joy rules the roost. Joy keeps everybody else in control. In particular, she keeps sadness under control. There's a point in the film where she basically says, sadness, you just go and stand over there. I'll draw a little chalk circle around you here. And you stand in that circle and you do nothing. Because whatever you touch becomes blue, becomes sad. So sadness, stay right over there, don't move, don't get involved, do nothing. And then as the film unfolds and Riley's world is falling apart, sadness and joy together 
find themselves on a quest to kind of restore Riley's memories. And the whole film is really about how Joy learns that sadness has an important role to play in human life. Joy will have to learn that sadness is not a negative emotion, but is an important emotion in human life. And that's what I want to explore with you a little bit this morning through the story of Job. And we're going to look at it through this one of the oldest and this old and great story. And Job is a kind of an everyman for us, a type, if you will, of Christ, who himself was known as a man of sorrows. Would you pray with me? And then we'll have a look at the text from Job. Father God, as we um, look at this great and ancient story, the book of Job, I pray that you'd be present with us now. Lord, each one of us has walked in here this morning with our own stories, with our own complex emotional lives. And so, Father, I pray this morning that as we look at sorrow, sadness, and grief, that you would be present with us as Lord of all, our comforter, our savior, God who is present to us. And we pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the second week of your series on the book of Job, the Bible's most unfortunate man. Here is a painting of Job that I found by a French artist called Bonin. It's repulsive, isn't it? I mean, it's disgusting. It's horrible. Don't you find? I do. And I think Bonner deliberately wanted to do that. He said, look, this is not a polite story that you're reading in the book of Job. Here is an old man who was wealthy. He was a righteous man. And in the Hebrew thinking, in the ancient thinking, to be wealthy would have been to clothe. He would have been a richly clothed man. He would have carried his status in what he wore. And here he is, stripped, naked, on the ground, in the dirt, and importantly, surrounded by dark. Why is Job a righteous and wealthy man who shunned evil in this state? And as Johnny said out for you last week, it's not that Job has been leaving, leading a precarious life where he's been kind of walking close to the edge of a cliff and finally he fell off. He's been ignoring the signs. No, it's the other way around. The cliff has fallen on Job, unfairly, unreasonably. And the question is, why? Why has this happened? In the last two chapters, Job has lost 500 donkeys, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, his servants, his seven sons and three daughters, and now his skin is covered in sores. It's not fair, is it? It's not reasonable. And the question that the author wants to bring up us in us is why? Why is Job suffering? And ultimately, how will Job respond? And in a brilliant dramatic device, the Hebrew author tells us, the audience, what is going on that Job cannot see. So the Hebrew author tells us that Satan has come to Lord God from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth, a sort of brilliant image that Jesus picks up on of evil. That's what it's like. It just kind of roams around aimlessly, looking for something to destroy. And Satan has come before God and challenged God and said, this man, Job, this wealthy, righteous man, he only fears 
which is an ancient way of saying love, but love a king, love a lord. He only fears you because you've given him good things. Take away all his good things and he will turn from you. That's the challenge. And we, the audience, watching this story, we know it, but Job doesn't. So we begin to experience the human condition that you and I experience in small ways, sometimes bigger ways, is that when we suffer, we do not know why. That's the human experience of suffering. As people of faith, as people who believe in God, we cannot say it's random, it's meaningless, that suffering has no point, and yet we do not know why. Why do we suffer? And that's why this book really belongs to wisdom literature, because it's a book of wisdom, and there's a big difference between wisdom and knowledge. What you want to know, what you and I want to know when we suffer is why, and what we mean is, give me some reasons why. Tell me why so I can sort this out. We love knowledge. We love knowledge because it gives us power, don't we? We like iPads and iPhones and things that will do things for us so that we can sort our lives out and run them the way we want to run them. But this is not a book about knowledge. It's a book about wisdom, which is a book about, means it's about love. It's ultimately a book about relationship and love. So the author builds in this kind of dramatic device. We see as an audience why Job is suffering, Job doesn't, so that's our experience. And then he builds in a second dramatic device, which is this. Satan has said to God, you watch. When I take away his blessing, he will turn on you. Not only will he turn on you, he will curse you. This son of yours, this righteous man, he will turn on you and he will curse you. That's not talking about profanity, curse words. It's an invocation of harm or evil. That's what he'll do, says Satan. You watch him. And his wife, in the story, as we read, or actually I think it's just before the part we read, Job's wife, helpfully, always listen to your wives, men, comes along to him when all the disaster is struck and says, yes, yes, Job, go for it. Curse God. Curse him. Now, if we were steeped, which we should be, in the scriptures, we would start to hear an echo of something. Can you think of another woman, I'm sorry about the slight sexism here, another woman who sides with Satan and says to a man, do something that you should not? Eve. And you're starting to hear in this story echoes of the creation narrative because there's now a third dramatic flourish that the author brings us. Just before this incredible outpouring that comes from Job where he curses the day of his birth and he asks why, why, why. Just before, this is what happens. His friends come, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I love those names. You're gonna hear a lot about them in the next few weeks. They come and sit with Job and they weep with him, and then there's this extraordinary moment when it says, for seven days and nights, there was silence. Now again, what do you hear? Seven days and seven nights, what does that remind you of? 
Creation. Creation. Something is being birthed here. And the question for us as listeners, as readers of the story is, what is going to explode out of this moment of creation? What kind of man will come out? What kind of Job is being birthed? And finally, finally, Job kind of takes center stage in the narrative, and out it all comes. It all comes bursting out of him. And it's not just a muttered curse word. It's far more guttural. It's far more out of control. And Job curses his own creation, his birth. After this, the scriptures read, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. What happened at the beginning of creation? What was the first thing that happened? Light. And now Job says, no, bring darkness. Let darkness come, not light, let darkness. And the drama is intense because it seems at this moment in the audience that Satan has won. Satan said, Job will turn. And now it looks like Job is turning. And it doesn't just stop there. Job moves from cursing the day of his own birth to the cry of a suffering everyman. Why? Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? I remember when I was about 14 years old and I had a very difficult teenage uh, life. I felt very, very distant and removed myself entirely from my parents. And I remember exactly where and exactly when I stood with my parents outside a house in the north of England and I cursed my own birth. And I said to them, I wish I had never been born. I wish. And on and on it goes. Job goes on from one why. Why did I not perish to another why? Why, not, why me? Why any of us? Why any of us? Why is light given to anyone? To those in misery and life to the bitter of soul. Why is life given to a man whose life is hidden, whom God has hedged in? There is no escape from this suffering world, Job seems to say. And here's the interesting thing, and this is really what I want to talk to you about this morning. The scholars of Hebrew, those who study the language, say this about this text. It comes in the form of a lurid curse. Curses were quite normal to Old Testament ways of thinking to Hebrew people. There were professional curses. Do you remember the story of Balak? He's a professional curser. Bring him along and he'll say some curse words. So cursing is not unknown to the Old Testament at all. But in form of the, so Job's uh, words come out in the form of a lurid curse. They elaborate and exaggerated, and it's intended to bewail a man's misery and so to evoke human and divine pity. But here's the point. The poetry, the language, catches the wild cries. The ejaculations are taught, and the grammar is difficult, almost to the point of incoherence. But... 
translators spoil the art by making it smooth. This is written to evoke and point to a man who is, I can't even find the words, the groans and utterings, the cries, the tears that are coming out of him are incoherent, out of control, embarrassing, difficult to deal with. And we, religious folk, we like to just smooth it out a little bit. Has Job gone too far? Has he cracked? What are we as Christians supposed to do with that kind of response to life? When the President of the United States cries on public television, politics aside, the truth is we're not quite sure what to do with it. It immediately brings up all sorts of questions. Is he, is he putting it on? If he's really crying, is he losing control? That's kind of scary. And that was just a little, little tear. What if he'd started to sob and cry publicly on television? What would we as a culture have done with it? You see, in the UK, we're taught to keep a stiff, stiff upper lip. That's what we're taught. You might get a little tremble on Downton Abbey every so often. But basically, keep a stiff upper lip. Here's, your, here's the American story. Stay perky. Stay perky. Just be positive. As I was writing this, I was sitting in Whole Foods, Whole Foods Cafe. I like to go there. They got great muffins and good coffee. My life is entirely constructed around good coffee and muffins. But anyway, I was there. And on the TV screen was Wendy. I think it was Wendy, a, a sort of talk show. You know, it's one of those talk shows where, you know, it starts and Wendy comes out and everybody goes, Way, Wendy, hooray! And then she introduces her first guest and it's, oh, I don't know, Jane who has a cookery show. Here's Jane, way, hooray! And then Jane says, oh, I've got this great cookery show. Hooray! Everybody goes, hooray! Now I'm divorced because it's taken over my life. Hooray, hooray! Actually, I've lost all my money. Hooray! Sort of a cult of positivism. And Wendy was actually talking about some woman I think had written in and she'd, her relationship had come to an end and Wendy's words were, get on and get over it. Just get on with it. Stay perky. Stay perky. And we know this even though psychologists would tell us that there is great value in tears just on a purely physical level. There's obviously a cathartic, that means getting emotion out, just on a psychological level, there is great value in that. But tears, emotional tears, not fly in the eye tears, but emotional tears actually release toxic chemicals that are stored in your body. That's what it does. And not only that, emotional tears have a natural painkiller inbuilt. I'm not making this stuff up. This is science, okay? So tears have tremendous value just on a purely psychological level, let alone anything else. Tears restore our psychological and physiological balance. Yet in the West, we don't really know how to deal with it. And what I want to say, ask us this morning is that as 21st century Christians, do we make it better or do we make it worse? And I want to be very careful in the way that I say this. But I read an analysis of that film, Inside Out, from a Christian counseling site. 
And the Christian counseling site was sort of drawing out same of the, some of the same themes that I hope I'm drawing out this morning. But he said, well, what imagine, let's just imagine if Riley's family were Christians. How would it be different? And I thought, that's interesting. And this is what the, the counselor wrote. If Riley's family were Christians, they may have been wise enough to emotionally process and pray with Riley. I hope so. The Holy Spirit would enter the script and the movie would have a critically important twist that is not there. Mum and dad would grieve with Riley and welcome her tears. They'd have been led by the Spirit of God's Son to cry out, Abba, Father, we had in that earlier reading. And the Holy Spirit groans within them, leading them to the Father's love. They know that pain and hardship are still with us. They know that to be a part of God's family, to be united to his son, involves suffering because Jesus himself suffered. And I read that and I thought, oh, I hope that's true, but I'm not sure. I'm not quite sure that that's what we do always. And I'm not pointing any fingers here because many times in the church, we have kind of drifted from what we've been reading there, which is a Hebrew way of understanding the world and life, to a kind of Greek way of understanding the world and life. And why does that matter? Because in Greek thinking, you, all sorts of strange things creep into our faith, separation of spirit and flesh, but also stoicism. That's a very Greek value, stoicism. And there is a great danger, I think, in Christianity today, I can't speak for other ages, where we start to use ideas and phrases like, the joy of the Lord is our strength, or Paul's admonition to us to be content in any and every situation, or even the hope of eternal life to really say to people, don't cry too much. Not too much. A bit's okay, but not too much. Don't get out of control. Don't grieve too loudly or too long or too hard. My wife runs this course for women with eating disorders and she uses testimonies. And there's one testimony of a young woman and uh, she tells this little story about she grew up and she didn't know her real father and as she was growing up as a child, she wanted to say, Mom, it really, really makes me sad deeply. I grieve that I don't know my real father. And her mother helpfully said, well, darling, whenever you feel like that, what you should do is think of Japanese prisoners in the Second World War and how they had their fingernails pulled out, and then you'll feel much better about your own situation. Not really very helpful. And we laugh, and of course we say, we would never do that, but then sometimes, and again, I want to be careful and don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but sometimes we point at the cross and we say, Jesus, he suffered. Don't, it was much worse for him. Don't cry too long. Don't, don't grieve too deeply. Don't become socially embarrassing. But that is not what the invitation in Job is. All those things are true. Joy, God's joy can come in the most unlikely circumstances. 
God's strength sustains us and support. It's true. But none of that should deny us as Christians, not the right, I don't know what the right word is, but that thing of grieving and fully expressing what is really there in us. And the, the clue to this is because, as Johnny pointed out a little bit earlier in this service, this text belongs to a broad tradition of texts in the Old Testament that are called essentially laments. There are lots of them. Lots of them, they're scattered out throughout the Old Testament. There are Psalms. The words of the Psalms are scarily emotional. They talk about things like longing for revenge, death to my enemies, but also grief, gut-wrenching grief. And they're not, that's not in there for us to say, well, them but not me. Quite the opposite is to say this is a part of human experience. The greatest prophet of the Old Testament, Elijah. He gets to the point in his life where he says, I've had enough. I want to die. There's a whole book in the Old Testament which is simply called Lamentations. Grieving, sorrow, crying. And Job 3 is a lament. And that's the invitation of this text. It's not to master or reject or control our emotions, the cries of the heart, but to learn to express them and feel them and above all, pray them to God. When Jesus himself goes to the cross to die for us, to take his sins on himself so that God could come to us in the Holy Spirit and he could be poured out into us and give us, instead of hearts of stone, hearts of flesh, That's what happened. When Jesus removed the barrier between ourselves and God, he was giving us hearts of flesh, not hearts of stone. It was not as a security blanket for us so that we would no longer have to suffer. Quite the opposite. It was so that we would become more responsive to the world and the pain and the suffering around us. That our stony hearts would be softened to the grief and pain of others around us. But also to give us the resource that would allow us to live through that, the Spirit. Faith in God is not intended to be an insulation or insurance against suffering. And the why, and I want to come back to the film Inside Out, if you just want to throw that slide out. Why? Why should we allow ourselves and allow others, perhaps even more importantly, to express fully our grief and sorrow? This is what happens in the film. Riley, who's miserable in San Francisco, she hates it. She hates her school. The hockey team is rubbish. Trash. (laughs) She's miserable. She's miserable. And it expresses itself because she's not allowed to express sadness. Instead, anger and fear rule the roost. That's what happens. And she becomes angry and fearful. And that anger and fear eventually push her to run away. And she runs away from her mother and father, and she gets on a bus to take herself back to the Midwest where everything was happy. And she's on that bus, and as this is all playing out in her life, sort of her inner life, Joy is finally understanding that sadness has a role to play. And in fact, in this circumstance, sadness is the the person or the personification who will save Riley. So finally, Joy gets it. Sadness is not something to be repressed all the time, put in a little white circle and told not to move. Sadness must have its day, or her day, rather. And finally, Riley starts to weep and weep and cry. 
And as she does, in a sort of gloriously biblical moment, she turns around, she repents, and she runs back to her family. And as they grieve, it brings them back into relationship. You see, the terrible irony is that if in unintentional ways we're telling people in the church not to grieve too deeply, not to cry too long, not to become incoherent, not to become embarrassing, the terrible irony is that people in those circumstances already feel distanced from God. That's the experience of tragedy, of grief, is to start to feel distanced and removed from God. And if we then say, okay, cry a little, but not too much, we actually reinforce that sense of separation. But the invitation in Job is the opposite, is that we need to bring these things in their fullness and in their reality, in a reality that we're probably not even only aware of us, uh, fully ourselves, to learn to pray our tears, our grief to God. And it's actually by expressing his deep grief to God that Job honors his relationship to God. You know that you only really cry and grieve with those you really, really love and trust. And the day that in your family or your spouse relationship or your friendship uh, you, stop, you stop revealing what's really in here is the beginning of the end because you're beginning to draw away. So as Job brings the fullness of his incoherent grief to God, he's actually honoring God. And you'll hear as you get towards the end of this story in this series, that in the end, it's not Job that God's rejects. Yes, he's got some hard words. God will have some hard things to say to Job. But ultimately, God will reaffirm Job and his relationship to him and reject those around him who try to moralize, explain, and perhaps to say, cry a bit, but not too long. So this text, and I'm gonna finish with this, really is inviting us to do three, three things. It's inviting us to learn to sit in the reality of our tears and what we feel. We have to learn to actually live in that reality, not pretend it away or use our faith or the words of scriptures to pretend that it's not really true. We should not become Christian Stoics. That is not the call. So learn to sit in our tears. Secondly, learn to accept the unknowing part of suffering. Job is not ultimately an apologetic, an explanation of why people suffer. If you read it like that, you've misread it. It's not trying to explain to you why humanity suffers. It never does that. In the end, Job never gets an explanation. So we have to learn to sit in our tears. We have to learn to accept that we will, in a sense, suffer in darkness. But ultimately, the great hope is that we have a God to whom we can pray our tears. The fullness of what we feel. The God who in Jesus Christ said this very simple thing. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And for me, that's just a lot of ways. If you're grieving with the sorrow, with the fullness of what's in you, come to me. Come to me. With everything you are. Don't be a stoic. Don't pretend it away. 
Come to me with all you are. You are not offending me. You're honoring the relationship between me, God, and you by bringing everything you are in prayer. Shall we pray? Let's just wait for a moment and lift our own thoughts. Anything that's come up as I've been talking to God. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're present. Thank you, Lord, that increasingly you're giving us hearts of flesh and not hearts of stone. And Lord, I just pray that Christ Church Vienna would be known as a place where people can cry if they need to cry. If you can't cry in church, where can you cry? We thank you for your comfort, Lord. Thank you that you are God with us. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Be not far from